0: Welcome back. I'm your host, Julia Menezes, and you are listening to The Art of Change, an educational podcast devoted to understanding how change happens at individual, systems, and organizational levels. This podcast has been developed by the Office of Community Engagement at McMaster University. If you are a student listening to this podcast as part of The Art of Change course, welcome to week four. In today's episode, we will focus on systems thinking as a framework to assess changes during the COVID-19 pandemic. Specifically, we will be focusing on public space, which became especially important during the pandemic as a place of social connection, recreation, protest, and even housing. Public spaces are closely linked to questions of inclusion and exclusion in the city. Who gets to use public parks or streets, for example? And for what reasons? Our discussion today will examine how public space is implicated in processes like pedestrianization, gentrification, housing unaffordability, and indigenous land rights. We will ask, how has the COVID-19 pandemic changed how we think about and use public space? How have individuals and organizations pushed for changes to public space during the pandemic? And how can a systems approach help us to understand the connections and tensions between different change processes? In the first half of this episode, we're talking with Hamilton business owner Jason Cassis about working within municipal structures to push for change. Specifically, we're looking at the temporary closure of King William Street in Hamilton which transformed an otherwise regular downtown street into an outdoor dining district to support businesses and their employees through pandemic shutdowns. In our conversation with Jason, we will ask, what factors contributed to the successful closure of King William Street? And what opportunities did the COVID-19 pandemic present? In the second half of this episode, we're speaking with Kubra Hagar and Marima Manzeltzic from the Hamilton Encampment Support Network about approaching change from outside of existing government or social structures. As we learn about the continued evictions of encampment residents from public space in the city of Hamilton, we will ask, what factors prevent the city from making change to combat houselessness? And how has the encampment support network approached change making in the context of the pandemic? As we begin this episode, Jason tells us more about some of the business impacts of the COVID 19 pandemic.
1: I'm Jason Cassis. I am co founder of Equal Parts Hospitality. We operate various types of hospitality assets. We either invest in or build or run interesting things that change neighborhoods or participate in the community somehow in a meaningful way, whether we're feeding people or they're sleeping overnight or they're golfing or things like that. Today, I think we're going to be talking about restaurants, which is how we got started. Uh, The early part of the pandemic was, quite frankly, terrifying. You know, you are being forced to be shut down by a government, and even prior to that, we could see very quickly the erosion of sales, even without a government shutdown. You very quickly saw A Monday night or a Tuesday night with only 20 or 30 people when you may have had 50 or 60 people three weeks prior. So I think what was really unnerving was the unknown. And I think that goes for many things in life, whether you're entering a new course in university or whether you're building a new restaurant that you hope someone will enjoy. The unknown is one of the most difficult things to rationalize in your mind. And something as unknown as a, as a pandemic is a true test. So I would say that in the early days, you didn't even know you had to pivot because you didn't know anything. And so really you were going on adrenaline and fear. And basically in the beginning, we met and we determined that we effectively had to shut our operations even before the government was shutting our operations.
0: Moving past the fear of the unknown into a place where you were able to imagine change was one of the early obstacles that Jason and his team faced during the pandemic. When restrictions were in place and they couldn't open the doors to their restaurants, they began cooking free meals for employees to pick up as a way of staying connected. During this time of extreme unknowns, there was no discussion of a patio program or potentially closing King William Street. Discussions about street closures only began after a single post on social media.
1: I remember the day that I had retweeted something on my Twitter account. And I believe it was a street in Spain that they spilled right out into the street. It used to be a street of automotive, and now it was a street of tables and chairs and happy people dining outside. And I think that it, it, virtually the same time, Jason Thorne who is the head of planning and economic development at the city, called me on a Sunday afternoon of all things to give you an idea of his commitments, you know, and he wanted a solution for restaurants. And then he said, can you get in touch with Councillor Farr, who is truly one of the best counselors you could ever have in a downtown core and between Councillor Farr Mayor Eisenberger, Jason Thorne, myself, and the other restaurants on the street, we all came together to create the idea that it it was a good idea. We should do this. From there, Kerry Jarvie, the BIA, got to work and really laid out the foundation of what would become the street closure.
0: The street closure involved closing King William Street to traffic and adding additional patio seating so that people could dine directly on the street. Although these changes were made quickly in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, the idea of a street closure wasn't new.
1: The closing of King William Street had been talked about. I had actually met with a McMaster University group to discuss whether that would be a good idea. And at the time they wanted a full stop, let's shut the road and transition it to pedestrian only. And although I'm a fan of pedestrianization, I'm also practical or pragmatic in the approach to it and believe that in most instances, crawl to walk to run is received better by all the stakeholders on the street the people who live above the restaurants, the people who operate the restaurants, and the city employees, whether they're the ones who clean the streets, whether they're the, they're the fire department. And so I personally had said, I don't think it should be something that we do full stop. I think it's something that we need to do in bite-sized pieces. And so the, we talked about creating an art piece that could shut the street on a temporary basis. And that is actually being installed soon. So this goes back two and a half years ago. So to give you an idea how long it can take to do something in a city, it was about two and a half years ago that we were talking about that. So now we have the ability to shut the street when we need to, or seasonally. I really am a big fan of shutting King William seasonally.
0: The group at McMaster University that Jason mentioned were undergraduate students in the CityLab Hamilton Semester in Residence program, who conducted public engagement in 2018 to determine what a pilot street closure on King William could look like. At the time, the project had four main objectives, to increase safety and foster community on the street, to promote healthy lifestyles, to promote non-motor forms of transportation, and to reduce noise and air pollution. Their work was focused on hosting conversations and gathering stakeholder feedback and built on the work of activists with the group Transportation for Livable Communities, who had temporarily closed King William Street In the early 2000s. Although neither project resulted in a prolonged street closure, they did help pave the way for changes that occurred during the pandemic.
1: I think what it did is it warmed us all up. I think we had already been thinking about it, so therefore it's not like, hey, we're going to shut the street and now you have to think about it in less than a week if we're going to pull this off and the sky could fall and Lots of people would get their backs up. None of that really happened. It was all more of a rah-rah, let's shut the street. Um, It really
2: paved the way.
0: Although early conversations helped to drive change, there were still many legal and logistical obstacles that Jason and others faced when trying to close King William Street.
1: I've learned that the fire department is one of the largest obstacles to everything in the city. And so far as accessibility and things like that, even straying little twinkle lights that we have in so many communities around the world, that really bring a ceiling to a street and really create a vibe. They want it up. Like, I don't know. I want to say like 25 feet in the air. It's just not practical, right? Because they believe that. Somehow it will get in the way of a fire truck, even though it's low-voltage wires and they're all low-rise on King William on the north side. Um, So I've learned that you have to figure out the fire piece. You have to figure out garbage removal. There's many, many, many things to consider when you make these bold moves. One thing I will say is that I'm going to fight like heck before I would give back that street again seasonally speaking, anyhow, I like it. I love it. I think, I think we haven't even done 10 or 15 or 20% of what we could do for that street. I think we were all just trying to preserve our brain cycles through the pandemic and it was just enough for people to do coming out of the pandemic. I think we need to double, triple, quadruple down on cool factor to make a public realm like King William, just incredibly impactful, so that you just desire to be there.
0: Transforming a public street into an impactful, pedestrian-friendly space sounds positive. But the goal of the patio program was not just to qualitatively make King William a more desirable place to be. During the pandemic, when restaurants were closed or operating at reduced capacity, the goal was to quantitatively increase sales.
1: It had a material impact on sales. And I can tell you that because two out of three of our restaurants uh, are on King William and one isn't. And the one that isn't, despite having a patio of reasonably similar proportion on both sides of the building, did not perform as well as the two that were on King William that had great patio access, a great street vibe, if you will. So there's something to be said about the impact of everybody coming together to create a thing in it, in an odd sense, think about car dealerships. They all locate together fast food restaurants. They all locate together. So there's something to be said for critical mass of, of anything really. Um, university students want to be where other university students are. And so you get that kind of mass going. And it really does help support the narrative or the idea of we are community and we all carve out our sense of community. And so for the city of Hamilton, King William or Hess village or different places like that, they have senses of community for their customers that love those businesses. And so I think post pandemic, we have to think of this, not just to create a vibe or twinkle lights or someone playing a guitar on a street, but about what is the financial impact, because it was meaningful. It was meaningful. We dreaded knowing that winter was coming in the first year of the pandemic. And uh, and sure enough, sales dropped.
0: Jason and others are currently in the process of figuring out how the changes to King William Street during the pandemic, which many business owners saw as meaningful, can be leveraged post-pandemic. This work is complicated, partly because it means thinking about streets as spaces not only for cars, but also for pedestrians, cyclists, and now private businesses, restaurants, and their patrons. Simply stated, this complicates the seemingly straightforward definition of public space or a public street.
1: I think it poses all sorts of interesting challenges. So if you've got very large patios that are seasonal, it's kind of like operating a golf club, you have this massive HR crunch at the beginning of every year, and it's very difficult to staff things up. So I think we would have to think about, you know, is it just a function of putting as many seats on a road as possible? I don't think so. I think it's a function of putting as many beautiful things, including the people who dine there on the street as possible. In other words, the. The beauty is truly in the the people who show up. And, you know, we're like that by nature. We want to be around other people. Uh, We're social creatures. So I think having someone strumming a guitar next to someone selling wine out of a shipping container next to people eating steak frites on a patio or on a road is all important. And I think those are the things that I would consider going forward. It's not just about hey, I've got a restaurant on King William, and I think I need as many seats as possible. I think it's about, hey, I'm just a part of this streetscape, and what other things can we do down here? How else can we program this environment?
0: One of the key lessons that Jason has taken from the pandemic is the importance of municipal governments and local BIAs in driving change. With that lesson, comes the need to align goals with city priorities when advocating for changes like the closure of King William Street.
1: I think when they talk about the pandemic and we're all in this together, I don't know if I've heard a more bullshit statement in my life. And it truly, it's not the case. We were not in it together. We were not collecting pensions. We were not collecting paychecks during the pandemic. We were private sector, we were shut and it was tough. And that can sound bitter, but the point I'm making is anything that the city can do, it needs to do now. What will pull us out of the abyss is not more money from the feds, not more We won't shut you down from the province. Yes, we appreciate not getting shut down, of course, but what will really make an impact is our municipal governments and the BIAs that we belong to. They're the ones who need to step up and really push ideas. And it makes sense because if they want to continue to collect business taxes from non-vacant buildings, that's going to be important to them. It's our tax base at risk.
0: Assessing the closure of businesses from the perspective of a municipality's tax base can help us understand why the patio program was prioritized during the pandemic and widely supported by the city of Hamilton. For Jason and others, advocating for the patio program from a tax framework helped to gain support from the city and also stakeholders with diverse opinions on topics like street closures.
1: It's interesting because there's people who are out there who are antique car. There are people who are anti-pedestrianization. There's people who still want to see King Street be a five-lane highway from one end of the city to the other. The reality is that the streets really are for everybody. And I think we need to consider all, all bits of mobility and all bits of entertainment and all bits of why we need to use these streets as we go forward in the next 10 or 20 years. And I think that the pandemic has really proven that a street is so much more to so many more people if you just think a little bit outside the box.
0: If we start with the premise that streets and public spaces should be for everybody, we're left to wonder why in the city of Hamilton, public space is not always treated this way. In the next few minutes, we're shifting our focus from public streets to public parks, as we speak with members of the Hamilton Encampment Support Network, or HESN. Kubra Hagar and Marima Menzelcic join us to talk about houselessness and encampments in the city of Hamilton, that is, locations with one or multiple tents set up to house unhoused residents. To begin, Kubra and Marima will tell us about the work of HESN and how the group got started in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic.
2: Hello, um, my name is Kubra Hagar, and I am a steering committee member of the Hamilton Encampment Support Network.
3: My name is Marima Menzelbsech, and I'm also a volunteer with the Hamilton Encampment Support Network. The Hamilton Encampment Support
0: Network is a youth led volunteer group and advocating body dedicated to supporting encampment residents throughout the city of Hamilton.
2: A lot of our work is just geared towards making sure we are supporting residents who live in encampments throughout the city of Hamilton. So, for example, if the need or the ask is to hold an encampment defense uh, and make sure that that person's encampment or their belongings are defended and not torn down by this encampment, well, that's what we're going to do. So, the work that we do is kind of geared. Um, and steered by the wants and the need of residents. A significant portion of HESN's
0: work has focused on advocacy, highlighting the ways in which houseless folks are vulnerable to COVID-19 outbreaks in Hamilton's shelter system, for example. They have also spoken about the need for an intersectional approach to encampment discussions, acknowledging that houselessness disproportionately affects Black and Indigenous residents, as well as residents who are living with disabilities. Although housing precarity and houselessness in Hamilton are not new, AGSN began out of a recognition that the pandemic has exacerbated many of these issues and has highlighted the way that public space is treated and policed in the city of Hamilton.
2: We launched um, the Camp Support Network at the end of 2020, uh, and that was right after uh, the end of Freedom Camp, which was a 15-day-long sit-in that took place at Hamilton City Hall at the end of November and beginning of December of of 2020, where many Hamiltonians demanded defunding of the Hamilton police services and a reallocation of those funds into free housing in Hamilton. So the demand was for city council to defund the police and then fund free housing. And like I said, that demonstration took place for 15 days, and right at the end of it was when the Hamiltons Support Network was launched to support the unhoused community and unhoused residents.
0: Similar to the patio program that Jason mentioned in the first half of this episode, the Hamilton Encampment Support Network formed out of the pandemic. But unlike the patio program, the Encampment Support Network and the encampment residents that they advocate for have not received strong support from the City of Hamilton.
2: I think it's important to note that with regards to support that encampment residents have received from the municipality, it isn't support that they're receiving. It's actually quite the opposite. And the city has actually been the ones pushing um, encampment residents from, from park to park to park, displacing these people, throwing their belongings away. The, the city has done actually the, the complete opposite of providing service. They've done disservice and inflicted violence upon encampment residents and these community members. These are all residents of the city of Hamilton. These are all people who live within, you know, city boundaries, right? And, and theoretically, the city should be thriving to provide tangible solutions and work with encampment residents to house them, but they've actually made their situation a lot more difficult because one, you have to worry about staying outside, but also worrying about the fact that the city could just come one day and tell you in two hours, you have to have your entire house and your entire life packed up, or else all of this is getting thrown in the garbage. And then they end up starting again from scratch. And that's what we've been seeing all throughout this year. And and that's what we know that encampment residents have been experiencing, it's very disheartening to see and very frustrating, actually, to see the situation that many people are in because shelters are just not an option for so many people. Uh, and shelters aren't solutions because they aren't from permanent housing. In the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic,
0: after a court injunction temporarily paused encampment evictions in Hamilton, the city released a bylaw enforcement protocol requiring that officials provide encampment residents with 14 days notice in advance of an encampment eviction. The bylaw also imposed certain restrictions on where encampments could be. For example, they were not allowed on public sidewalks or streets, and there could be no more than 5 tents in one encampment. The bylaw enforcement protocol took effect in 2020 and stretched into 2021. But on August 9th of 2021, The bylaw was repealed. They
2: scrapped that COVID protocol and went back to their pre-existing protocol. And they went back to full force um, evicting and and dismantling uh, encampments without that 14-day for example. It's not even about the protocol at that point, because even when the encampment protocol that existed during the pandemic was in place, the city was actually not even respecting its own protocol. And that's actually, you know, the reason why it was scrapped is because they fought on so many... Lies. And so many times we would call them out for the fact that they were not respecting the protocol that they put in place. And now I guess that just means they, they could take less accountability for doing the same thing because they don't have a protocol uh, that they theoretically would have to adhere to.
0: In the fall of 2021, the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic launched an injunction against the city in an attempt to re-establish a bylaw similar to the one that was repealed on August 9th. But on November 1st, 2021, the injunction was defeated.
2: Ever since the, the injunction failed, literally a day later, so many teardowns started happening all throughout the city. We've only been able to, to show up to a select amount of them because we, we only have the capacity to be where we know teardowns are taking place because the city doesn't, you know, let anybody know that these teardowns are happening. They just happen, right? So city workers show up in the morning and they're told where to go and they're told where to tear down. And they tell the encampment residents that they have two hours to pack up. Um, everything else that's left is going to be thrown out. There aren't any shelter options available, sorry. However, you can move further into the escarpment. People are being told to move into the escarpment near, near the trails. That is such a dangerous avenue or route that the city is, you know, willingly taking. And, and that's how you know that it's not actually about the problem at hand. And it's not about finding solutions to the housing crisis in the city. It's about aesthetics, you know. it's about Is there a group of encampments that is visible to everybody else? Yes. Okay, let's make sure that it it is invisible. Let's make the problem invisible. Let's not actually take care of it. Let's make it invisible.
3: To the point of aesthetics, you know, parks are for the public good. But (laughs) where are people supposed to go if they don't have housing? If we say housing is a public good and we don't invest in that, And we say parks are a public good, but we don't actually want to see people in those parks if they're living in the park. We want to see them in a particular way. It's like, well, what are are we doing to make sure that people are actually housed?
0: The concept of public good brings to mind several questions, including who is included in our definition of public? Who is excluded? And what role do aesthetics play in defining public good? As Cooper explains, these questions are often linked to municipal priorities, which are made clear through decisions by the city about where to invest and not
2: invest municipal funds. There has been problems with regards to gentrification in the city for a, a very long time, And I think this is just another piece of the big puzzle, another piece of the big problem. It's very telling to, to not only, you know, us, um, but to encampment residents where the city's priorities lie when they're paying a lot of money to put on beautify the city in different ways, the priorities put on so many other things that don't need to be prioritized at the moment because people are literally going to die this winter. People have lost limbs because the city doesn't take any adequate action. I think that is the message that is very clearly given to those who are seeing what's happening on the ground, but also those who are experiencing this. The city is choosing to prioritize aesthetics and um, enjoyment, Over the lives of unhoused residents in the city of Hamilton, over the safety of unhoused residents in the city of Hamilton. So to be honest, it's bizarre to me and absurd to me because instead of listening to people on the ground and instead of actually taking action, they've prioritized the capital aspect of not wanting to spend X amount of money housing all these folks when in reality, they're spending just as much money. Paying dozens of city workers who show up at these encampment teardowns every single day, all this money that you're putting into displacing these people to violently evicting them and throwing out their belongings could just be put towards housing. Um, There are empty houses, empty buildings that exist and and that the city has access to and the city can use to house people, but they are actively choosing not to do that. But in the same breath and at the same time, they are forcing encampment residents to move from park to park to park from location to location to location, putting them, one, at greater risk, um, and two, not actually finding a solution to their own issue. To add to that, the entire encampment clearing protocol,
3: as it exists right now, is based on people calling in to the city bylaw office to report an encampment. And so the reason why I, just, I bring that up is it's a person who has shelter, right, presumably, who's able to put in this call, and it's then the city coming in with all of its resources and all of its might and all of its time and energy to clear the encampment and it's a very clear signal and like when i've spoken with residents it's a very clear signal of if you own a home and if you pay me tax dollars in the way that like i've designed the system to then you can effectively tell me who gets to stay in this piece of area and who doesn't these residents don't have alternatives and so it's an aesthetic thing and it's something that's so deeply rooted in people with the access to shelter getting to dictate what they want in their circle of convenience. And so it's inconvenient for some of these folks that have spoken to that do call in the line to see encampments. Um, they'll like, you know, go back and forth about, oh, I'm concerned about the safety more broadly. I'm concerned about the noise. I'm concerned about all these different types of behaviors that I don't like. And then you'll tell them, you know, okay, well, where are people supposed to go? Why aren't you pushing your city councilors to get people permanently housed, to get people the supports they need. You know, if safety is such a big concern, why not push it towards that? And they'll say, okay, that's a whole conversation that takes a lot of time. They think we need to stop, you know, blaming city councillors or just blaming individual actors. It's also the community is tolerating this, right? The community is the one that's putting in the calls, that's mobilizing the city to do this. It is a decision by councillors, but it's also a decision about people in Hamilton and I really do think it boils down for a lot of people into that circle of convenience where they can think about all of these complexities but they just don't want to actually apply it when it comes to their neighborhood when it comes to their community because that's you know too too close for them they don't want to put in that time and the reality is you do have an option especially when you are sheltered to connect with encampment residents to speak with them to come from a place of you are my neighbor and I want to get to know you and I want to try to understand what's going on and I want to know who to direct my concerns to. I want to use that privilege in a way that actually advances this conversation, right? I always kind of push people to think about it like that. And and sometimes you will get more of a positive response than actually people trying to then engage with encampment residents when you speak to them in that way.
0: Engaging in conversation not only with encampment residents, but also with others across the city of Hamilton, has been a critical aspect of the Encampment Support Network's work. Tackling massively complex issues like housing precarity, unaffordability, and houselessness can seem daunting. To address this challenge, Marima explains that it's important that the Encampment Support Network is constantly contextualizing their work And the individual experiences of encampment residents within larger systemic processes.
3: We've been in a housing crisis for 25 years. This conversation about affordable housing, building new housing, what are we going to do about the housing stock? What are we going to do about increased rent prices, um, increased prices for new homeowners, et cetera? These are conversations that aren't novel, that aren't just concentrated to the past two, three years. And so, even some of this rhetoric that's been cropping up, where we're overly concerned about how COVID-19 is impacting, for example, shelter space or the affordable housing crisis. Like those are real concerns that are magnified during COVID-19 for sure. But these are issues that have been happening for decades. And so this question about what the city can do, the reality is the position that the city is not just the city of Hamilton, but cities across the province and across the country, but Hamilton in particular, because we're talking about it, like the p- reasons why encampments are growing. And the reasons why people don't have alternatives is directly because of decisions the city has made and continues to make. And so even this decision right now to just move forward by blazing every single encampment they see doesn't actually repair or solve the issue of housing or shelter space or other actual ways that we can move the conversation forward to put people into houses, to put people into more permanent solutions. And this doubling down on this like, well, what can we do now from city council is kind of a, a complex question because they are the individuals who have created the crisis. They're also the people with the funding. They're the ones that control the budget. They're the ones that get to make decisions about who they hire to do their research. And if we're constantly coming up with these excuses for why we can't do something right now, why we need to put in action like a 15 year, 20 year plan, it's like, but it's been 20 years of a housing crisis. And what have you done in those 20 years? And it's only gotten worse. And it's only going to continue to get worse if you implement the same policies that you do right now. And so what we're seeing right now, I think, is just an escalation of an attack on people who are homeless that has been in the works for 25 years, you know, for a very, very long time. And I think the focus does need to be on how are residents going to survive the winter? How are people going to, you know, live past the next four or five, six months, but we know winter's coming every year, right? (laughs) Like it's not a new phenomenon. We know encampments have been increasing. That's not a new phenomenon. And so this idea that, you know, people just don't have answers and we need to be looking 20 years in advance and and planning for for long periods of time. We, We need to also be looking at where these concerns come from and what they're rooted in. And they are also rooted in Indigenous land theft and these broader concepts about property ownership and who gets to own property, for what reasons can people own property, all of these kind of conversations are so interconnected with indigenous sovereignty and the ongoing colonial project. And I know a lot of people say that, but if you orient yourself into really understanding it as a project that has its own kind of structure, its own kind of ways that it bends and moves and changes over time, but still roots itself within this kind of overarching understanding that the settler colonial state replaced or intends to continue on replacing indigenous peoples on this land, I think you will find in tossing with that idea, you can poke holes and better understand why the system of property ownership and land ownership and orientations to like, why is a public park such a big focal point for all of these community members, right? Like if you take it from just something like that, as benign as a public park, and you connect it and root it into um, this larger colonial project, I think you'll you'll better understand different ways to poke holes in some of these conversations and, and even why, you know, city council does what it does and why there's even a bylaw enforcement line that you can call up to report an encampment as opposed to get that person's support.
0: Reflecting on how individualized struggles are connected to larger systemic processes is one critical aspect of envisioning change. But as Marima explains, so is the process of self-reflection.
3: I've talked to people in the last two, three weeks who are very angry at encampment residents and are very angry at the people living in their parks because they don't get to use the parks in the way that they've you know, used them for five, six, how many ever years they've lived in that area. It's also, you do have the privilege to sit and think about, why am I so angry at this individual person or this group of people living in a park? why am I this angry? What what is upsetting me? How is this related to some of the broader inequities? Because what I've noticed is the people that are sometimes even the biggest advocates for inclusivity and equity and equality sometimes lack the ability to actually communicate with the people that would really benefit from that kind of attention and that kind of care. And so I think if you have the privilege to be sheltered, sitting with that and thinking about You know, what that privilege entails, and maybe ways that we can move forward, ways that we can build communities together that kind of exist outside of the same structures and policies that the city has been implementing for the past 20, 40, how many of your years the city of Hamilton has existed, because it's those same policies that have brought us in the position that we're in today.
0: Though HESN's work with encampment residents has received a very different response from the city of Hamilton when compared with other pandemic efforts like the work to pedestrianize King William Street, for example. Both change-making processes have been grounded in community building and relationships. As Cooper explains, even if change for HESN isn't measurable, forming community in the face of housing precarity and a global pandemic can itself be a form of resistance.
2: It is very important to remember that the work is centered around community. It's centered around what we can do for each other and how we can support each other um, through this because you know, this system pits people against each other. The system has put so many people in such difficult and dire situations and that's why we have to do this work. So many of us don't have the option to just sit down and not do anything about it because so many of us are so close to being unhoused. So many of us have, have experienced that as well and I think that's why it's important to remember like that this work is reciprocal. This work is about being in community and making sure that you're supporting your community members. And those same community members who are supporting you, it's not about um, being a savior. Uh, it's not about thinking you have the solution to, to all problems. It's just about making sure that you're there to pay attention to what's going on and that community is prioritized and you're part of that.
3: Building on that point of precarity, precarity makes it very difficult sometimes to think about community when you're running after school, work, jobs. It's very difficult sometimes to be thinking about bigger solutions. But in a lot of ways, I think a very good counter to that precarity is actually coming together within a community and finding ways to support each other that exists outside of a system that just continues to double down on that precarity, hoping that you never talk to your neighbor because you're so busy in your own precarity.
0: We have one minute left, which means it's time for a recap. In this episode, we focused on systems thinking as it relates to public space and the COVID-19 pandemic. Specifically, we investigated how the pandemic has changed how we think about and use public streets and public parks. We engaged with several contradictions about the way that public space has been treated in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic and have seen that whether working from within systems of capital or trying to work from outside of these systems, making change starts with relationship building and defining community. We spoke with Jason Cassis about Hamilton's pandemic patio program and the way that businesses on King William Street were able to mobilize with help from the local BIA and the city of Hamilton. We learned that the pedestrianization of King William Street was part of a larger engagement process that began back in 2018 building on activist work from the early 2000s and ultimately resulted in the patio program which supported businesses during the pandemic we also heard from kubra hagar and marima menzeltsich about the city of hamilton's response to encampments in public parks during the pandemic we learned about how the hamilton encampment support network got started and about the need to engage in conversation and contextualize localized struggles in larger systemic processes when advocating for change. Join us next week for episode five of this series, where we will be discussing different approaches to housing affordability. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Art of Change. For more information about this podcast or The Art of Change course, please visit community.mcmaster.ca.